This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes. We are in a series of studies in this book. Old Testament book comes right after Psalms, Proverbs, then Ecclesiastes, page 556 in the Pew Bibles. Ecclesiastes is one of the wisdom books of the Old Testament, although sometimes the wisdom wisdom we glean from it is by not listening to the author of Ecclesiastes. Uh, who, as we will see, sometimes takes uh, a rather cynical or sometimes skewed view of things. You see TV shows where it says, the views of the guests expressed on this show do not represent the views of this network. Well, there's no such disclaimer at the beginning of Ecclesiastes. And while every word in Ecclesiastes is inspired by God, it is a faithful record of what was written and what was said and what the preacher who wrote Ecclesiastes struggles through. Sometimes what you read in it is like the advice Job's friends gave to Job. That is what they said, but it's not necessarily right. Or the advice that the serpent gave to Eve in in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. And there instinctively we know uh, that's an inspired record of what was said, but we don't want to take his advice. Well, sometimes in Ecclesiastes we have to struggle with what he says as he struggles with what he knows and how it fits in this world with life under the sun, life as it's lived out here, life for the most part as he describes it without a view toward God, without any transcendent, any overarching reality that ties it all together. Sometimes he brings in glimpses of that, but those times are somewhat infrequent. Well, today we're going to be looking at at Ecclesiastes chapter 7, Verses 15 through 29. Hear the word of God. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. And there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I had something more bitter than death. The woman 
whose heart is snares and nets, and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the scriptures, and as we come to this portion of your word, we pray that you would give us insight. We pray that you would help us, Lord, uh, to sort through the various topics that we find here and to profit by our contemplation of them this morning. We pray you would sanctify us by the truth. Your word is truth. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I'm sure if you've lived any length of time really at all, that you have had those experiences in your life where you have said to yourself or said to someone else, now I have seen it all. Usually some outlandish event that occurs maybe to you or maybe something you witness or maybe that you see on the news or read in the newspaper and you say, now I have truly seen it all. Uh, one of my earliest experiences with that, I was getting ready to leave the campus where I was in college, about to cross a busy street. And the light had changed, and I stepped off the curb. And as soon as I did, I heard tires screech. And I looked just in time to see a car, a pickup truck actually, the nose down with the braking skidding toward me. And I started to try to jump up. We've all seen the action movies, how you jump and roll, right? Well, I was getting ready to jump up, but I didn't quite make it. And just as before it stopped, the truck hit me, my left hip, knocked me sprawling into the intersection, a few books here and there. Well, my first thought was to, to get up, to pick up my stuff and get out of the street, because traffic would be coming from the other direction. But as I did so, and it was actually a fire station right on the corner there of this intersection, you know, firemen were starting to come, they'd seen, you know, they were sitting there waiting for a fire, and they saw me instead, and they were coming out to get me as I was scurrying out of the road to not get hit again. The driver of the pickup truck, who was a female, by the way, I had a friend who had a theory, the bigger the truck, the more likely is a woman driving it. Uh, she got out, and she was hysterical. And she did not come check on me. She was, she was, she was crying and hollering uh, and ran around the front of the truck, got in the passenger side door, pushed her friend who was sitting there, who was male, pushed him into the driver's seat, and they took off. <laughs> Didn't even check on me. If I'd had any sense, I would have looked at the tag, but I was just trying to get out of the road. And I, it was one of those now I have seen it all moments. Fortunately, I was not hurt. I was a little sore, but, but unhurt. And I thought, now I have seen it all. I hadn't, of course. Uh, many times since then, I've had the occasion to say, fortunately not quite that uh, hard-hitting, uh, occasions to say, now I have seen it all. And uh, I'm sure that you have had those experiences as well. Well, you know, when you have that happen enough, when you see the kinds of things that people do or the kinds of things that can go on in the world, with enough of those, it's easy to become cynical. 
to take somewhat of a jaundiced view of life. But a better response and a biblical response, instead of becoming cynical, instead of becoming jaundiced, would be to become wise instead. As we look at our passage here this morning, the preacher begins right in verse 15 by saying, In my vain life, in my empty life, I've seen it all. I have seen everything. He says, and he goes on to list some of the kinds of things that have led him to say, I have seen everything. There's nothing new under the sun. I've seen it all in my empty life, in my vain life. And he talks about what he's seen, but also his response to it. And as we look at this passage specifically, he shows us four aspects of life that we need to be informed about. Four aspects of life, four areas that we need to know. First of all, he would say to us here in this passage, know life. Know life. Understand life. Look at verse 15. He says, in my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in evil doing." Now, the preacher is troubled here as he looks out on life. He's troubled by the fact that, as he sees it, as the song has it, only the good die young. Why? He was taught in Sunday school growing up that if you obey God's law, if you live a holy life before God, he rewards you with long life. But what he sees as he looks out on the landscape is the righteous suffering, the righteous dying, and the wicked prolonging their life in their wickedness. But as he says it here, prolongs his life in or by his evil doing. Now, he's troubled by that. It's a big problem. That's a big problem for many people ever since. Why is it that those who rebel against God, who, who, as it were, thumb their nose at God, seem to have a nice, easy time of it in life, and those who are trying to obey Him are the ones who seem to suffer the misfortunes and the, the afflictions and the calamities. Now, if you know your Bible, if you know the Psalms, you know specifically, there's a Psalm that deals with this. Turn over to Psalm 73. Psalm 73, and in many ways parallels this verse very closely. It's a psalm of Asaph. And he starts out by affirming the truth that he was taught, you know, the orthodox doctrine. Verse 1, Psalm 73, verse 1, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. That's right, we know that, that's the truth, right? But, verse 2, as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He said, now I know the truth that God rewards those who are pure in heart, but I almost stumbled. I really almost just went over the edge, theologically and spiritually speaking, because I looked out and the people I envied were the evildoers, the wicked people, because they were prospering, because their life was good. And he goes through a whole list, verse 4, they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. You know, they skirt the law and get away with it. 
They break the law and prosper by it, and, and no ill consequences seem forthcoming. Verse 6, therefore pride is their necklace, violence covers them as a garment, their eyes swell out through fatness, their heart overflows with folly, and they speak uh, uh, with malice, as he says, loftily they threaten oppression, and they set their mouths against the heavens, they even speak against God, nothing happens, nothing happens. And verse 11, they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? God doesn't care. God doesn't know. If he did, wouldn't he do something? It's fine. Nothing nothing wrong here. Verse 12, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. And look at the conclusion he comes to. Verse 13, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. Now there is a cynical conclusion. And that's exactly, at least to a degree, where the writer of Ecclesiastes is. Now, the difference with Psalm 73 is there is a resolution. Verse 16, Psalm 73, verse 16. When I sought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task, which almost sounds like the writer to Ecclesiastes, of Ecclesiastes, doesn't it? As he talks about the wearisome things that he struggles with. Verse 17, until, until, I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. He said, all of the, I tried to understand it, it just wore me out, it tired, I was, I was becoming cynical, until I entered the sanctuary, went into the presence of God, and I gained the right perspective, and I saw their end. Verse 18, truly you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin. Reminds me of Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, on the text from Deuteronomy, In due time their foot shall slip. And what he's saying is here that, yes, they may appear to be doing well, life is going great, no pains, no problems. However, they are perched on the edge of a very slippery place over a precipice, and their fall is coming. They look like they have it all together. They look like they're in a secure place, but that's a deception. And they are in a slippery place, and the Lord will make them fall to ruin. Verse 19, how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. And he acknowledges uh, this was wrong. Look at what he says in verse 21. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in my heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. He said, when I was struggling with this, you know, when, when, when this veiled my eyes, I acted in a way and, and thought in a way and maybe even said things that were embarrassing. He said, I was like an animal, no more understanding than an animal before you, just living by what I saw without really realizing the truth. And then he ends the psalm by affirming his love for God, his devotion to him, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail. Yes, I may have a heart attack. Yes, my body may give out. Yes, I may suffer in ways that the wicked in this world do not. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever, which is more than the wicked can say. For behold, verse 27, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to 
you. But for me, it's good to be near God. I've made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. A very different conclusion. You see, the writer to Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes never reaches that point of godly resolution. And when we struggle with this, we need to revert back to Psalm 73 because he gives the answer. He gives us the right perspective. But we need to know life. We need to know this world we're in. And that means recognizing a couple of things, at least. It's a fallen world, and God's people still suffer. God's people, Christians, are not exempt from dying in plane crashes. They're not exempt from contracting cancer. They're not exempt from injuries and automobile accidents. It is a fallen world. We still live in it. And though we are redeemed and citizens of heaven in Christ, we still suffer living in this fallen world. But the flip side of that, the other thing we need to know about life, is it's God's world and he still reigns. And God is Lord even over our sufferings. God is Lord even over our failures. And uses those and weaves those to sanctify us, to make us like Christ, to prepare us for heaven. And uses those things in our lives. So the first thing we need to do is know life. Yes, know that God's people still suffer. We will suffer. Things happen. But also know that God rules over that. Uh, and that he is our treasure. And nothing can separate us from him. Well, the second thing that the writer mentions here, <clears throat> Ecclesiastes, is not only we should know life, we should know balance. Look at verses 16 through 18. In some ways, balance in the Christian life is a horrible word. Uh, because we're not to be moderate, we're not to be balanced. We are to be wholeheartedly, absolutely devoted to our king until death, however that death might come. But it's also true that wisdom in life means a certain level of moderation or balance in what we do. So look at verses 16 through 18. He mentions balance particularly in four areas, righteousness, wisdom, wickedness, and folly. Verses 16 through 18. Be not overly righteous, he says. Not what you'd expect to find in the Bible, is it? Don't be overly righteous. Well, what does he mean? Well, what's he getting at here? You know, be good, but not too good. Uh, later, be wicked, but not overly wicked. What, what's with this? Well, it could be somewhat of his, something of his cynicism coming through. Well, if the righteous are going to die and suffer anyway, well, don't, don't make too much of an effort at it. And in cynicism, that might be the conclusion. However, biblically, in the context of Scripture as a whole, we might put it this way. The way another writer puts it, non-biblical writer, writing about this passage, he said, Solomon's words paint a picture of a super pious, overly zealous individual who finds it terribly important to impress others. This person's a master of external impressions and presumptuous self-sufficiency, the little innuendos regarding how much a person might pray, and those unbelievably pious looks. If we want to apply this, what we could do is say, not that we shouldn't strive for righteousness, but we should not try to cultivate an overly righteous life. You know, I love the Puritans. I love reading their writings. But the Puritans were not perfect. I think as a society, they had a lot more on the ball than we do today, but they had their faults. And one of their faults was to always find spiritual significance and meaning in every little thing. And sometimes it can almost become annoying. You think, just live life. Just, just, just you know, have fun without having to make it a gospel lesson. Well, because God gave us the world to enjoy. You know, it's okay to have fun without having to have a devotional at the end. 
that sort of thing uh, could be the kind of thing that we're getting at here. So not to be overly righteous and don't be too wise, he says. Well, certainly good wisdom you can't have too much of, but it is possible uh, to go from being a wise man to a wise guy. And there's a huge difference. Uh, Or to be a know-it-all, which no one enjoys. Don't be overly wicked, he says in verse 17. Does that mean it's okay to be a little wicked long as we don't overdo it? Well, of course not. As followers of Christ, we are in a mortal struggle against sin in our lives. We put it to death even as Christ has died for it and and we have died in him. Uh, But we still sin. But whatever we do in our fight against sin in our own lives and our own hearts, we are not, as Christians, to go plunging headlong into overt wickedness. We lust. It happens. We repent. We ask God's forgiveness. But we don't go commit adultery. We covet. It happens. We repent of it. We ask God's forgiveness. But we don't go out and rob a bank. We get annoyed with people. It happens. We repent. We ask God's forgiveness. But we don't go murder someone. Reality is we do sin. Reality is we are sinners. We do things that are wicked. And the more you grow in Christ, the more you see the depth of sin in your own heart. But we repent. We move on. But by God's grace, we certainly fight against sin in its more overt and obvious and heinous forms. But he also says, neither be a fool, verse 17. Foolish people do stupid things, as we read in Proverbs earlier, and as it says here, sometimes we do foolish things that cost us our lives. You know, sometimes we can do something foolish and get away with it. Uh, The teenager who, somewhat drunk, gets into a car and maybe does make it home. But we also hear of the one who does something stupid and pays for it with his life. Adults do the same thing. Sometimes stupidity can kill you. And so do not be a fool, he says. Why should you die before your time? Verse 18, it's good. You should take hold of this. And from that, he says, hold not, uh, hold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. And he's referring back to what he's been talking about. Uh, the balance in righteousness. The balance in, in wisdom. These are the things that he is talking about here. Balance is called for in the Christian life. Uh, Yes, in our righteousness. There's a time to witness to someone. There's a time not to. There's a time to say something that needs to be said to someone. There's a time not to. And all of that calls for wisdom. Speaking of wisdom, the third thing he says here we need to know is wisdom itself. Verse 19, verses 23 through 24. We need to know the benefit of wisdom. Verse 19, this could come right out of the book of Proverbs. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Uh, It's better to have wisdom than it is position, to have authority and so forth. The wise man has more strength than, uh, than those necessarily in power. Now, ideally you have those in power with wisdom, but wisdom is stronger than position is what he's getting at here. Wisdom is a great benefit. Uh, But he also points out the difficulty of wisdom. We need to know wisdom. There's benefit to it. We ought to gain it, try to live by it. But it's not always easy, is it? Verse 23. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said I will be wise. 
But it was far from me. That which has been is far off and very, very deep. Who can find it out? No doubt there have been times in your life where we faced a decision or a difficulty or a problem. And you think, okay, you know, you just furrow up your brow and, you know, you're kind of like Winnie the Pooh. Think, 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 think. It was Pooh Bear who said that, right? It's been a while since we've watched the Winnie the Pooh. You think, think, well, we're trying to be wise. What is the wise thing to do? And oftentimes this is where good counsel comes in. But there are times when we hit the wall with our wisdom and, and just don't know the answer. And that's exactly what he's saying here. I said I will be wise, but it was far from me. Or we do what we think is the wise thing. And the result is, is not what we want. It's not what we hoped for. So we need to know wisdom. But we also need to know that getting the wise thing, knowing the wise thing to do can be difficult. It's not easy. Often only in hindsight do we see what would have been the best thing to do. Maybe we did it. Maybe we didn't. But we need to know wisdom. Here is where uh, obviously a book like Ecclesiastes, a book like Proverbs, can be invaluable. Because they're called the wisdom books, Job, uh, that give us a perspective on life, that help us to see life in a godly and biblical way by what it says or sometimes in a roundabout way like Ecclesiastes by what it doesn't say. Then the last thing he mentions, as we go through life, we certainly want to know, uh, we want to know life, the ways of life, we want to know balance in our life, we want to know wisdom. The last thing he mentions is we want to know people. We want to know people. And if you think about it, people make up a great deal of life. Much of life has to do with people. People we go to school with, teachers, people we work with, people we live next door to, family, uh, people are a big part of life. Look at verses 20 through 23, verses 25 through 29. The lesson we learn in 20 is, verse 20 is, don't be disillusioned when even the best people sin. Look at verse 20. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. We read uh, Romans 3. No one does good, no, not even one. No one who understands, no one who seeks God. The writer to Ecclesiastes is dead on here when he says, There is not a righteous man on earth who does good, and implied does good all the time, and never sins. You know, even the, even the most sanctified, even the most godly people you know, they still sin. And if you're around them long enough, you're going to see it. And one reaction is to be disillusioned. Oh, you know, I can't believe it. They're such a hypocrite. They're not. They're a redeemed sinner. Uh, sinners still sin. There's no one who is so righteous, so good, that he does good all the time, every time, and never sins, never says the wrong thing, never gets exasperated, never loses his patience, never does something stupid. So knowing people, don't be disillusioned when even the best people sin. Because at best, they are sinners saved by grace. Another thing he says we need to know about people, don't always take to heart what you hear people say. Look at verses 21 through 22. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. You know, this picture is a servant, and the servant is perhaps overheard, and he's speaking slanderously of his master. 
The master hears it. Well, how many times has the master spoken negatively of his servant? We say things, maybe things in confidence that we thought were not overheard, or maybe things that we're just thinking, or maybe it's just an impulse of the moment, that if it were overheard, might be hurtful. And sometimes it is overheard. And what he's saying here is knowing people, people say things, say things they don't always mean. Sometimes they do and just didn't want you to hear. Uh, We can't take to heart everything that we hear someone say. Just to use an illustration, it's kind of curious. Um, Here in the church, it's interesting people's reactions when they visit the church and talk to me afterwards. You know, we've had people who... um, will come up to me afterward and say, you know, love the church, friendly people, great sermon, what a place, I'm so glad I found you. Never see them again. We have people that, you know, Barbara finally tracks down about the time they hit the parking lot. They're moving so fast, and she runs them down to say hey to them. And we think, well, you know, they obviously found this not to be the place for them. And they come back and join. You just, you never know when what people say. Not to say they're liars, but... You know, you just don't know sometimes how to take what people say. And that's what he's getting at here. Don't always take to heart everything that you hear someone say. Let's do lunch. Maybe they're just saying goodbye. Have a nice life. (laughs) Know people. Don't be led astray by what some people do. Look at verses 25, 26. I turn my heart to know and search out to seek wisdom in the scheme of things. I want to figure it all out. To know the wickedness of folly, the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Read Proverbs 5, 6, 7, where the father warns his son about a certain kind of woman. And the results that uh, can occur there. Uh, I have to, if I might, revert to yet another animated uh, film, The Jungle Book. Uh, one of my favorites, you know, where Mowgli goes off to the man village following this young lady. And, uh, and Baloo, the bear, says, no, come back, come back. And uh, uh, Bagheera says, no, he has to go, he has to go. And, uh, you know, of course he's following her. Of course she dropped her water pot on purpose. And Baloo says, oh, they ain't nothing but trouble. Well, that could be the writer to Ecclesiastes' view of women here, but as specific as he is, I think he's thinking of a certain kind of woman here, although he'll have his chance to offend all of you women in the next few verses. But don't be led astray by what some people do. There are certain kinds of women and certain kinds of men, whether in in terms of their morals or whatever it might be, that you don't want to lead you astray. You want to be careful, as he puts it here, that they don't, they're not to you more bitter than death, whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are fetters, who pleases God. The one whom God shows favor escapes her. But there are those who are entrapped and uh, go to their death uh, figuratively, if not literally. Again, Proverbs 5, 6, and 7, the warnings against adultery. But also, don't forget that some people are, by definition, that exceptional people are, by definition, quite rare. Look at verses 27 through 29. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, trying to figure out life, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I haven't found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. You know, I found one good man. 
among a thousand. Not one good woman. Now, it could be that, uh, that the preacher here is, is a woman hater. Yeah. Charter member of Spanky's He-Man's Woman Haters Club. But the point is well taken. That as he looks around, and yes, takes a cynical view of people, there are very few good people out there, and I would not share his view, and you shouldn't either, because he's looking at it when he's in a funk, when he's really low, when he's very skeptical and cynical. The point is well taken, though, that exceptional people are, by definition, rare. They are the exception. Uh, there are a lot of people out there, all kinds of different character, and knowing people means knowing different kinds of people. And as we grow older and more mature and interact with people, uh, we learn to know people and certain personality types. But we do begin to recognize that the people out there that we would really want to know, people would really want to learn from, are sometimes somewhat rare. It's not just everybody whose advice we take. It's not just everybody out there to whom we would tell our deepest secrets and innermost thoughts. So we are looking, if not one in a thousand, at least for the, the exceptional people out there who have godly counsel, who live Christ-like lives, who are dedicated to following the Lord Jesus, uh, people that we would want to learn from, people we would want to have as influences in our lives. And we shouldn't let his cynicism keep us from hearing that point. Well, he concludes, verse 29, See, this alone I found. That God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. God made man righteous, with integrity, with character, Adam and Eve, but they have sought out many schemes. They've gone in all their different directions. It's reminiscent of Genesis 6, where the Lord God saw that the heart of man was continuously evil all the time. That wicked, wickedness takes our hearts in all kinds of different directions. That's his conclusion. God made man upright, but they've sought out many schemes. The longer you live, the more opportunities you will have to, to think that you have seen it all. And of course, the longer you live, the more you will realize that you have not yet seen it all. And while it's easy to become cynical about life, God's word calls us rather to become wise. Not cynical, not jaundiced, not skeptical, but wise. There's a difference. Cynicism is bitter. Godly wisdom has joy in Christ despite circumstances. Cynicism expects the worst. Godly wisdom recognizes that God is sovereign and he is good. And even in the downturns, even in the disasters, he uses those for our good and for his glory, even when we don't see how. Cynicism says, do unto others before they do unto you. Godly wisdom reaches out to others with the love of Christ. Now, that's not to say that as Christians we should be gullible about this world and about people. Uh, wisdom is by definition not the same thing as being naive, as being gullible. We recognize life can be hard. We recognize that often shrewdness is called for. We recognize that people can be backstabbers. We recognize that plans can go bad. But we also recognize that God rules over the sun, and he rules over the events that take place here under the sun. And he calls us to live as his people with his wisdom here under the sun. Let's pray. Father, we pray that we would. We pray that uh, you would give us wisdom to live here in this world, to be shrewd in dealing with the world, shrewd in the right way. 
but also, Father, to show forth the grace and the compassion and the love and the gentleness and the hope and the joy of Christ. Father, we pray that you would give us grace, Lord, when we think we've seen it all, not to be cynical, but to learn, to be wise, and to be thankful that when all is said and done, this is your world, and you rule and will rule until every enemy, sin and even death itself, is placed under the feet of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.